Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Um, if you would keep your Bibles opened in Psalm 63, that's what I'll be talking about this morning. Throw all these papers out real quick. Uh, this last week, Mike and I had, uh, we've been discussing what we were going to be preaching on this weekend, and in conversation, Mike had the idea, and I thought it was a great idea, I thought it was a great idea, a, a great idea, I forgot how to talk, I thought it was a great idea that he would, um, since I preached last night, and he preached at 9, and then I'm preaching right now at 11, um, Mike said, hey, whatever the Lord puts on your heart, just share a message that God's put, it on, that God's put on your heart, and then we'll, sw- we'll switch next week. So I'm preaching at 9, and then next week he's preaching at Saturday and 11, so we'll give the same sermons, but to the different congregations that meet during those times. And, and if you've been, if, you've, if you're a man who's come either to the men's retreat, we went there a couple weeks ago, or if you've been coming to Don Busters, especially this last Wednesday, you'll know that the thing that God's been putting on my heart and mind is what it means to really be patient, to not be hasty. And if, for those of you that have been to our Don Busters recently in the last couple of years, um, it's all anchored out of Jeremiah 6.16 where we're told to consider the ancient, ancient, the ancient paths and choose today which way you will follow, the way of death or the way of life. And the Israelites, of course, stood before that and said, we will not walk in it. They would not walk in the way of life. And so as we've been going, um, as we've been meeting with our men periodically throughout the years, we, we, can, we consider different paths. And so this last week, I knew that since I was teaching um, and patience is the thing that the Lord's been putting on my own heart and mind. My wife and I, sorry, Vera, I'm putting you on the spot tonight. I love you. This is a, a good story, though. I was, I was uh, asking her, you know, hey, so I want to talk about patience, but what would be like a good antonym, like a good word that's the opposite of patience? And I had only, I had only thought about hastiness, and that word's used a lot of times in Scripture, and we didn't really come up with anything else. And so that's what it was. The paths were either patience or hastiness. And um, I prepared for that teaching, and then I even woke up a little bit earlier on Wednesday to finish preparing for that teaching, and, and I went to Don Buster's, and I gave it, and it was amazing. I'm just kidding. And then I, I got back home, and um, Veto was, was just kind of waking up and getting out of bed, and our, our two-year-old son was awake, and I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm back here, so I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare Mateo's lunch, and I'm going to start getting his breakfast ready. And so... I had an idea for how I was going to do all of those things. And so I get into the kitchen and I start doing those things. And Veto gets up, comes into the kitchen and starts helping, which I didn't ask for, okay. But, and she was making him the waffles and she, didn't, she forgot to put the oil on the, on the waffle iron when she put it in there. And so when I went to open it, it was stuck. And I'm just standing behind her and going, ugh, ugh. And, She's like, sorry, baby, I didn't mean to. And I was like, that's okay. And so I, I like, scraped it all off. I sprayed the oil. I put more stuff on there. And then she started doing other things that I was already doing. And I went up and I walked behind her and was like, ugh. <sighs> okay, no you're, no, you're good. You're good. I'm just here, whatever. I was, I was doing it. And then I, I did this for a couple of minutes. And then my, 
my awesome wife, she turned around and went, hey, Drew, how did your teaching on hastiness go this morning? (laughs) And I went, can you not? And she went, okay. And then she kept on, she kept on preparing and I was standing over there finishing, getting his lunch ready, feeling really small, feeling really bad about myself. And Hey, I'm sorry, baby. I'm sorry that I was hasty with you. And she's like, that's okay. I love you. I love you too. And so this, all of us are a work in progress. Amen. And as we read in the, the 63rd Psalm, really the, the, the feature, the theme of this Psalm would be to seek the Lord no matter what. And if you were here at Don Busters on Wednesday, we know that we, we concluded our time considering Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and chapter 8, where the teacher Solomon, he's admonishing his readers that when we go before the Lord to not have hasty words, to let your words be few, because God is in heaven and we're on earth. And later on in chapter 8, he says, do not rush to leave the king's presence. And I know that for me, in my battle against hastiness and my pursuit of being a more patient man, that starts and it will start with me continually every morning waking up to seek the face of God and not rushing to leave his presence, but waiting on him to teach me what it is that I need to hear that day. And that's certainly true for all of us. And so that's why um, I'm teaching on the 63rd Psalm today. So I need to make my way there and then we'll talk about it. But when you see in the, the opening verses, the opening verse in verse 1, before that even, we see that the, the background that's provided in the text about this psalm, is we, we learn that it's a psalm of David and that he was in the wilderness of Judah. If you jump ahead and look at verse 11, uh, David writes, But the king shall rejoice in God, all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This has led many people to think that this psalm was written by David when he was being pursued in the wilderness, uh, when he went to the wilderness after his son Absalom was trying to kill him. Um, but most scholars agree that this passage was written by David when he was in the wilderness trying to escape Saul, who was trying to kill him. David, at this point, at that point in his life, had, had already known that he was going to be king. In fact, before he even did much in the nation of Israel, he was. He was given, he was anointed, and he was, he was given this prophetic word from Samuel that one day he would be king over Israel. And he goes on and becomes a, a leading commander of the armies of Israel. And, and there's this song that arose from amongst the people that really annoyed and made Saul jealous. Dave, or Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. So we see that Saul grew angry and jealous in his heart and the spirit left him and Satan entered him and provoked Saul to pursue David to end his life and kill him. Despite the fact that his son Jonathan was best friends with David and the affection that he felt for David, he was so jealous and he was blind with anger that he was pursuing him to kill him. Scholars would say that verse 11 is really just David alluding to the fact that though he'd already been anointed to be king and though he had already done so many amazing things in Israel and already had such a high place and a high standing, he finds himself abandoned in this wilderness, not able to do the things that any Jew could do. And we'll talk about those things here in a little bit. This is an extremely important psalm. Charles Spurgeon actually noted this psalm from the early uh, church father, Christ- John Christotum, who was an archbishop for Constantinople, 
But Chrysostom said, he tells us that among the primitive Christians, it's like in the first and second century, this psalm would often be read every single week in worship to remind the worshipers of how necessary it was for them to seek God no matter what, to hunger and to thirst, to have bodies and minds and souls and hearts that, that hungered and thirsted after the Lord. And so we, see, we start in verse 1, we see David saying, Oh God, you are my God. This may seem like senseless repetition, but it's not. David declared to Elohim that he was David's El. He was David's God. In the original language, David is, is, is calling to attention, you are my God. In a day when, pagans thought, when pagan thoughts were so many, and there were so many gods, and each nation had their own God, and in many instances, if not most, they had multiple gods, David sweeps such ideas to the side and proclaimed his allegiance to the one true God. And he calls to mind that not only is he the one true God, but he is my God. Everyone in here say, my God. This is an incredible truth that we get to claim, and I use the term we very specifically. Those of us in here who do believe in Jesus Christ, those of us who have decided by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we can only, that, that the only option is to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Yes, we are all creatures of God. We've all been created by God. Every single human being is created by God, and not only that, they've been created in the image of God, but only those who have a relationship with Jesus can say such a thing like this that David says. Only those who know God have the right to call him Father. And so David appeals to his God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 10, was talking about how the new covenant had been ushered in by Jesus and quotes from Jeremiah saying this, this is Hebrews 8, 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah says that, and the writer of Hebrews quotes it. In Genesis chapter 17, this is uh, when, when God is giving a promise to Abram before he's Abraham, and he says to him, I will establish my, my covenant between me and you and your offspring that come after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's Genesis 17, 7 and 8. Also in Leviticus, verse 11 through 13, we read, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. This is God speaking, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves, and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. David undoubtedly had passages like these in his heart and in his mind as he was in the wilderness appealing to his God. We go on in verse 1. David writes, O God, you are my God earnestly I seek you. Some of your versions might say, early in the morning, I seek you. But this word shakar that's used, the primitive root, literally it draws the reader to consider the dawn. And there's a sense of, there's a, um, a sense of earnestness and a sense of desperation that as soon as 
David wakes up in the morning, he rushes to be in the presence of God. Early in the morning, I seek you. And we know that Mark, or Jesus rather, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, we read about him. In, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. I don't know if you all have seen the, uh, the, this new, the new series, the Jesus, what's that? The, the, thank you, The Chosen, wow. Um, but there's, there's that one episode in season two where Jesus is doing ministry all day and he's ministering to the multitudes and he comes back to the tent and he's just extremely exhausted and weary. I, we could only guess that that is probably exactly how Jesus felt after most days of ministry. For those two to three years while he was doing ministry with the disciples, he was being bombarded by people every single day. And we know just by reading through the Gospels that he always had mercy and compassion over the multitudes and would meet needs. He would cast out demons and would heal people and pray for people and would teach them and and ask good questions and answer their questions and all sorts of other things. And at the end of the day, Jesus would probably often be exhausted. After all, he took on flesh, being made in the appearances of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He took on the nature of a slave, of a servant, who lived for, who, who, and I'll, I'll add, who lived self-sacrificially for the service of undeserving others. And so every night, he probably slept incredibly well. He had a clear conscience, that helped him. But when he would wake up early in the morning... He would, with a sense of urgency, just like David, earnestly go to a place where he could be in the presence of his heavenly father and get his daily marching orders so that he could continue to do the things that he was destined to do as a man. In Psalm 119, verse 147, the psalmist writes, I rise before dawn and cry for help. And this is so important. Listen to this. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. Don't be hasty when you go before the king to leave his presence. Let your words be few because he is in heaven and we're on earth. I love Pastor Mike, what you said when you preached uh, to the men on Saturday morning at the, at the men's conference. There was someone you were having a conversation with who said, man, I really just want to hear the voice of God. And Mike, you said, read your Bible. And then he said, yeah, but I'd like to hear his audible voice. And then Mike told him, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> when we come before the king and we sit in his presence with an open word, without an agenda, and we wait on his words, he will speak to us very specifically things from his word that will apply to us that day earnestly, early in the morning, I seek you. And he goes on and says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this word thirst that's used in Isaiah, or in Psalm chapter 63. He writes, thirst is an insatiable longing after that which is one of the most essential supports of life. There is no reasoning with it, no forgetting it, No despising it, no overcoming it by stoical indifference. Thirst will be heard. 
The whole man must yield to its power. Even thus it is with that divine desire which the grace of God creates in regenerate men. Only God himself can satisfy, satisfy the craving of a soul truly aroused by the Holy Spirit. Only God can quench the thirst of a man or a woman who has actually been brought to life by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, it's interesting here that he uses the word thirst or faints. Familiar versions might say pines or longs. But these really do de- depict, along with earnestly seeking after God and having a hunger and, and a thirst, an insatiable pining and longing for the, the thing that comes to mind as David writes this psalm is that he is utterly and completely desperate for the presence of God. And do we, in the 21st century, we all have our own difficulties that we go through. Maybe none of us are, are being pursued by someone in the wilderness, literally, and we're going to be killed. We all have things that, that steal our joy, that distract us, that discourage us, that weigh us down. But do we resolve in the morning to wake up and say, my soul and my flesh is desperate to be with God right now. That will produce fruit in our lives if we cultivate and harvest such attention towards God. It's interesting that he mentions the soul and the flesh as well in this passage. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, brethren, I urge you or I beseech you, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. If you read Romans chapters 1 through 11, you know what the therefore in chapter 12 is there for. Anytime you see that in scripture, anytime you see the word therefore, you should always consider why, what it's there for. And in chapters, that was funny, cool, okay. And, <laughs> you're welcome, okay. In chapters 1 through 11, there's a lot of theology. We talked about this last night, but, but Paul, um, he, he, we, many theologians will argue that the book of Romans is the most important and theologically dense book in the entire Bible. And of the book of Romans, theologians argue that chapter 8 is the most important and theologically dense chapter in the most important and theologically dense book in the Bible. Um, what we do know is that Paul, for many years in his ministry, desired to go to Rome, but he, up until this point, had never, he was never able to make it up there until he appealed to Caesar and was taken as a prisoner on a ship that wrecked and then ultimately made his way up there where he was under house arrest. But as it stood, um, we know that the church had somehow made its way, not through any of the disciples, but had somehow made its way to Rome. And it really it takes us back to Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost when, when uh, after Jesus had fulfilled his ministry and he had died and he had resurrected, 50 days later, the day of Pentecost, in, is, in, in Jewish tradition, that was the day when, when the people, when, when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. And it's appropriate that right after the Israelites left Egyptian captivity and then received the law on the day of Pentecost, right after Jesus resurrects and overcomes sin, 50 days later is the day on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes in power to reside over the people and dwell in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus. And in this list of people that are given, that's given uh, by Luke in Acts chapter 2, all the people who were there who were present on the day of Pentecost, there's just a little mention there. And there were some visitors from Rome. That's all we get. That's all that the biblical text really provides us with in, in, in how the church 
made its way to Rome. And so there were visitors from Rome who were Jews who were there um, for Passover to offer their sacrifices. And they saw and heard about all the activities surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and they heard all the clamoring from the witnesses. Like, we saw Jesus. He's alive. And, and they were sticking around and they were anticipating what would happen on the day of Pentecost. And they were there when the Holy Spirit came in power. And they were there when Peter gave his message to 3,000 people about the gospel, looking at all the different areas in the Old Testament that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And these visitors from Rome carried it all the way back to Rome. But they didn't have great theology. They didn't have all of the necessary tools and and resources at their disposal. They had the Holy Spirit. They didn't have all the theology that was circulating over closer around the area of Jerusalem and the the uh, northeastern parts of the Mediterranean world. And so Paul's like, we're going to write a book that's just incredibly clear and really dense so that they'll know all the things that they need to know about Christian faith. So that when they practice, they'll have substance to how they live. And so we learn a lot in Romans that Jesus, uh, that God hands people over to their sin. Though it's written on our hearts, we go against the law and all of us are wicked and none of us can earn salvation. Um, But it's by grace that we've been saved. And it's even though we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and even though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he talks about the substitutionary atonement, how it was Christ's righteousness and goodness and perfection that's given to humanity who believes who is evil and wretched and against him. And Jesus takes on our wretchedness and he gives us his righteousness. And that substitution is what gives us right standing before God. And and, and where sin increases, grace only increases all the more. But just because grace increases does not mean that we should keep sinning because how can we who've been saved by grace continue to walk in sin? All of these things have been purchased for us so that we can live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, with all of these things in mind, I implore you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies, your entire beings, everything that makes you, you, as a living sacrifice. For this is your true and proper worship. That word for proper in the Greek is is logikos, which is where we get our word logical from. So the only reasonable thing that those of us who've been saved by grace, the only reasonable response when we consider how good Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us is that we live our lives and really every facet and aspect of our life for his glory. That's the only reasonable response when we consider his incredible mercy and love that's been shown towards us. Everything that makes us, us. I remember taking a philosophy class uh, back at UTEP a few years ago and, and we considered um, the, whole na- the whole idea of the, the nature of a man. And, and there's debate, and this is definitely not a debate that's a hill to die on, but I think scripture gives us insight. But people will look at Psalm 63 and they'll be like, well, David just talks about his soul and he talks about his flesh. So... I guess David would argue that we're only a dichotomy, that we just have like a physical nature and then we have like an immaterial nature. Some people call it our minds, people call it our soul, but that's the inner person. We have the outer and the inner and that's it. But when we read, chapter, when we read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews puts it into perspective for us saying that, no, the word of God is alive and active and it, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the believer, but it divides 
piercing the soul and the spirit. So just reading scripture, it teaches us that, that we're made up of, we're a trichotomy, three different parts of us. That we are, we have a fleshly existence, it's our body. And then we have our soul, the inner person, and that's where our, our mind, that's where our heart is, that's where we reason, that's where we think, that's where we make decisions. But then this third area is the spirit of a man. And that's the part of the person that's dead before knowing Jesus. And yes, this death is all-encompassing. It touches every corner, every facet of our existence. This spiritual death affects us in our soul. It affects us in our flesh. But the spirit, apart from Christ, is completely and utterly dead. That's the part that when Jesus comes in, he brings to life. The part that's, that's transplanted where we're made new. And so I would submit to us that that David is bringing all of these things and he's saying, your whole being must be hungry and thirsty. Your whole being must be desperate for the Lord. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens up by saying uh, the Beatitudes. And in verse 6, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does it practically mean to do this, to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Well, I believe, as we've already talked about, that Paul answers the question for us in Romans chapter 12 and what it really means to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. It means that despite whatever you feel like, you've already fixed your mind to believe that your reasonable worship is to live holy for him. It's making decisions on a consistent basis realizing that Jesus is who he says he is, therefore I will respond with faithful devotion in the way that scripture tells me. Are any of you lacking in water? Are any of you thirsty? Well, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, they will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Are any of you desperate or hungry, lacking spiritual food? Well, Jesus said in John 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In saying that his soul thirsted, this is talking about David, in saying that David's soul thirsted and his flesh longed for or pined or hungered after, he alludes to the destitution and poverty which he laid under while in the wilderness. And then thus highlighted, that though deprived of the ordinary means of substance, he looked to God as his meat and as his drink, which directed all of his desires towards him. David didn't just live for God. He lived from God. David didn't just have a heart after God's heart. He resolved in his heart and mind, even when he sinned greatly, read Psalm chapter 51, Psalm chapter 32, even after he had sinned greatly, he resolved in his heart and mind to say, I will not only live for you, God, but I will live from you because you are the source of my strength. And that's why he had a fruitful life. That's why we can look back on him and say, yeah, a man who truly was after God's own heart. And so it is with us. We live with God as a source and not from ourselves, regardless of our situations. If we keep reading, 
It says, my soul, my soul uh, thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David was in a wilderness. David was, was secluded from, where he, from a place where he could get all of the necessary things that he needed, all of the comforts of being in, in Jerusalem and people being at his beck and call and servant, maidservants and whoever he wanted to come and give him what he needed. So though he was in a wilderness, his soul wasn't as he wrote this psalm. Look at verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And there's a little bit of debate amongst theologians. Is, is verse 2, um, is David just alluding to his past experiences? Like I've, I've been in the tabernacle and I've, and I've been at the place of worship and I've offered my, my, my sacrifices and I've seen, I saw when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back in and, and, when, and when the glory of God filled the tabernacle back up. I've, I've looked upon the sanctuary and I've already beheld the power and the glory of God and he's just calling that to his remembrance. But some theologians, and I'm inclined to agree with this, would say, like, no, he's saying he's talking about his experience right then and there. That though he literally and physically could not go to the sanctuary, he could not go to the place of worship. He couldn't go to the tabernacle and offer sacrifices and worship. He knew that the place of God's glory was not just a physical location, but it was really a concept that becomes a reality in the heart of a person who longs for the Lord. He knew that God's sanctuary was not only a place, but it was a spiritual concept that could be entered into by faith. And I've alluded to the writer of Hebrews, and he puts this into perspective for us also. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, he writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, The Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And here it is, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you went to the men's retreat we had a little devotional on that Saturday morning where we went through this. It's a great material that's uh, been produced by Crew, but it's, it's, it's called Being Filled with the Spirit. And it's just a little tiny pamphlet. And it talks about these three different categories of men. And it applies to women too, so people. You have the natural person who's not saved. The natural person doesn't know God. They, their heart hasn't been regenerated. They don't have any, any kind of, of functioning faith in Christ. Plenty of natural people will say, I believe in God. Plenty of natural people even do things that look religious. There's probably actually even plenty of natural people in this sanctuary right now who do things that look good. But in your heart of hearts, you don't actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Most of the time, though, the natural person's actions manifest in in fleshly living. That's the person that doesn't know Jesus. Then you have the spiritual person. This is the person who is saved and the person who is being sanctified, who's being set apart, who's looking less and less and less like the old natural person, like BC, before Christ, and they're looking more and more and more like Jesus Christ. The The spiritual person is someone who has placed Jesus on the throne of their life. 
The natural person, they're on their throne and Jesus isn't even in the equation. The spiritual person, Jesus is not only in their life, but he's on the throne in their life. But then you have the fleshly person. This is the person who's a believer, the person who has accepted faith. They, they've accepted the salvation of Jesus Christ. If you were to ask them any of the questions about salvation, they would give the right answers. And, and they know a lot. And they maybe have done a lot. But in their heart, though Jesus is in their life, he doesn't occupy the throne of their life. The fleshly person desires to only do things that please themselves, and they, they, they don't really live a life that's for the glory of God. And so their life doesn't bear fruit in the way that we've been talking about in John 15. It doesn't bear fruit the way that the, the spiritual person's life does. And if you've been doing your map reading, Peter addresses this issue indirectly, but for our purposes very directly, by telling us, this is an imperative, in your hearts, but in your hearts, set apart Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that you have, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's 1 Peter 3, 15. Paul, in talking to a group of listeners in Antioch, and when he was doing his work with Barnabas, said this in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. He was talking about uh, David. He was talking about the history of Israel, and he says, and when he had removed him, this is uh, when, when Saul was removed from the place of king, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. And then the word, a word that God had Samuel speak to King Saul in 1 Samuel 13, 14 alludes to this, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Jesus, and so we see here that David had a heart for the Lord. And despite being in the wilderness, he was able to say, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and your glory. He'd witnessed it and he had continued to witness it. And he knew in faith that he would continue to witness it in the future as he continued to seek him. And as it is with us. In verse 3, David continues saying, Because your steadfast love is better than life. Some of your versions, in the ESV it says steadfast love. Some of your versions might say steadfastness. If you have the NASB it says because of your favor. Some versions say faithfulness or goodness. Or some just say love. And this, this has been explained to me before. I'm not a, I'm not a Hebrew scholar at all, but um, I, haven't reached the, I haven't reached Hebrew yet in my seminary studies. I, I finished all the required Greek stuff, and so I have a little bit of a context for this sort of a comment, but um, those of you that know more about Hebrew than me, show, show me a little grace here. But where, where Greek is a super specific and almost mathematical language, where you, you look at a clause in Greek and you look at the, the, the word order and you can see emphasis. And, and each word, when you conjugate it, you can, you can look at the, the prefixes and you can look at the endings. And it's, it's extremely specific and accurate in what the Greek language is communicating. So it's very clear. It's very uh, right brain kind of way of thinking. So where Greek is like that, Hebrew is much more big picture. When you read a clause in Hebrew, what you're really seeing is a painter 
who's putting together a painting. And we're supposed to convey the idea of what's being communicated in that clause. It's not as specific. It's, it's specific and it's direct. And when you look at it in context, it's surrounding other pictures and other clauses in, in, in the text, it becomes more and more and more clear what the writer is getting at. But a lot of times that's the reason why when we're reading in Hebrew, there will be such different words that are used for different passages. And it's because of the idea that's being conveyed in these passages. And so all of these words, faithfulness, steadfast love, loving kindness, love, goodness, it all gets back to this idea of unmerited favor that comes from God. David had done nothing in order to deserve this from God. Rather, it was extended to David because God graciously gave it to him. And then after, after he says this, that your, your favor or your steadfast love or your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your grace, all of these things, he says that it's better than life. And Augustine makes an interesting observation. The, the word life is actually plural in Hebrew. And, and Augustine highlights that though the word life used in plural can often be translated into the singular form, he thinks that David very specifically uses the plural form of this word life to make this point. He, cons- he considered that the term lives was used here in reference to all of the various ways mankind tend- tends to elevate things above God and his mercy. And this is what Augustine says. Different men affect different modes of life. This, this is a, a modern translation of Augustine. So different men affect different modes of life. Some seeking riches and others pleasure. Some desiring the luxuries. Some the honors of the world while others are given to their sensual appetites. And what David resolves to say is, yeah, God is better than all of that. And the things that he gives to us is better than anything that we could come up with in and of ourselves. And so he's, in, he's, he's, he's highlighting and enhancing this point that we do not live from ourselves as a source, but rather from God. And I'll say this again, we live both for God and from God as our source. In this last verse that we'll consider this morning, in verse 4, he says, So, earlier we talked about the whole therefore, what's it there for? That's a similar word that's used right here in verse 4. So, with all these things in mind, he says, I will bless you as long as I live. To bless, to kneel down, or to salute. There's a lot of different ways that this word bless is used in reference towards God. It's, it has tied into it blessing and, and, and honoring and, and praising acknowledging, David meant this in the sense that it blessed and honored God when his creatures, when his creations praised him and thanked him appropriately. And so we've talked about the heart, but now we talk about the lips. He says, because of your steadfast love better than life, my lips will praise you, and so I will bless you as long as I live. Um, in James 3, verse 9 through 12, we know this. This is when he's talking about the power of the tongue. And he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? That's a rhetorical question. No. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? No. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So the implication here is what comes out of your mouth is what is in your heart. 
And so when we use our lips to bless God and to bless others and then turn around and then use our lips to curse and to slander and to talk bad about, we're showing this dual nature. We're showing how the flesh is taking over a lot of authority in our hearts. And Jesus addresses the Pharisees more confrontationally than any other group of people. In Matthew 12, verse 34, he calls them, you brood of vipers. I mean, that's, that's harsh. Like Satan is, is characterized as a snake. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil, when you're wicked? And then he teaches this to them, and it should be a pointed lesson for all of us. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He doesn't stop at the heart and lips, but he continues And he even talks about the hands. So I will bless you as long as I live, and it's in your name I will lift up my hands. We see, uh, we read this earlier. Mike Baker read from Psalm chapter 141 to begin our time of worship this morning. And a lot of theologians believe that that is also a psalm that was written by David when he was in the wilderness. And he says, um, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. And this is the, verse 2, this is the reason why theologians believe that he was in the wilderness because just like he was not able to go to the sanctuary, to the place of, of sacrifice, he says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands is the evening sacrifice. And so he calls readers with this beautiful, poetic, worshipful prayer. He calls his readers in verse 4 to consider his appeal in verse 1. My flesh and my soul hunger and thirst and long for you. And then he talks about out of his heart, he will praise the Lord. And even with his body, his hands, I will lift them up to praise you. David knew that even when he couldn't go and offer sacrifices, he couldn't give his grain and he couldn't give his evening sacrifice. He said, let my prayers be like the incense that's lifted up before your before your throne and let let my my hands that are lifted my empty hands I have nothing to give you right now Lord but let my empty hands lifted up in worship be my evening sacrifice that you take great delight in this is where I want to finish for us today Um, I said this last night and I said to us today there should be it's not going to look the same for everyone I get it we all have preference we all have different personalities so Don't hear me being legalistic that there is a cookie-cutter way that Christians are supposed to worship. But I would be willing to say this with complete definitiveness, that the indicator of someone who really does have a heart that hungers and thirsts for the Lord, that when they come together into the place of God's worship and we sing out praises to God, I would be willing to guess that the way that a person manifests that wouldn't look like this. And I mean, I have, the, I have the, the sheer benefit of being able to stand up here and lead worship a lot. And I'm always like, sorry, I don't know what I did to you, but I'm sorry. I'm glad you're here today. <laughs> and look, I get it. I, we, we have preferences. Maybe you hear, maybe there's songs that you would prefer not to hear because it's played too much on Caleb. Or maybe there's songs that, that, you, that you really like and the, the one that comes after that, you're like, oh, that's not really my cup of tea. Or I'm more of a hymn person or I'm more of a 
you know, like singing the same five words a hundred times kind of person. And, and whatever your preferences are, that's fine. You're, you're allowed to have preferences. God is gracious and, and we, we're all different. But man, the heart of someone who really is, who really has been redeemed, will manifest itself in some sort of physical expression. If we had time to go through all of it, which we don't, but if we had time to go through all of it, we would would see all over the Bible that that, that there's the clapping of the hands and and the jumping up and down, people who believe. There's kneeling and there's laying, there's prostrate. The word worship in the New Testament is proskene, where we get our word prostrate from. There's a lot of physical activities that are involved in the course of worship. Prayer, when we gather together and we have fellowship, when we break bread, when we hear the word of God taught, all of these things are designed to stimulate our heart to care more affectionately for Jesus. But then there should be some sort of a result that manifests itself outwardly. Because out of the mouth and through the activity of believers, the abundance of the heart speaks. So let us be these types of Christians. I'm going to finish reading this and then we'll be done. This is Romans 6, 11 through 14. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. His unmerited favor, his great loving kindness, his unending faithfulness, his incredible love. And all of that is way better than anything else in life. Amen? Well, Lord, we thank you that your love is better than life. We thank you that your love is steadfast, that it's unmerited. And so, Lord, like David, like Paul, like so many men and women that have gone before us, giants of the faith, I pray that you would help us to have hearts that would be after your heart and that the manifestation of that would be that our bodies, everything that we do, It would all be done instrumentally for righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.